is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, of hopefully your favorite Chelsea podcast, the London is Blue podcast. Dan, one of your hosts here. And look, this summer hasn't been a ton of crazy transfer news. It's been the same story recycling over and over again. And so we had to come up with some additional content for you. I would call this a part of our edutainment series where we are bringing some educational conversation to you that, again, is in our typical fit, fashion, and format in in a way that's enjoyable. And so I have Sam, you know him as CFC Central with me, but we are so excited to dive into scouting and football. And while Sam has been, I think, the amuse-bouche for every individual as we talk about scouting players over the past year, we are so excited to bring pull the cloak off, pull the wool back off of our eyes and dive deeper into the world of scouting. And we're going to do that with Lee Scott, who's the chief scout for Avella's Club de Football, football club in the Spanish Fourth Division. He's also been a scout for Aberdeen, St. Mirren, Patrick Thistle, and Hiberian FC, as well as an opposition scout for Dundee United, all household names in Scottish football. And so we are so welcome to have you join us, Lee. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you for the invite to come on. I'm really looking forward to having a chat. Yeah, and Sam, I know we've been trying to get this one organized for a bit, and I know that you've also called a lot of listener questions today, so we're going to get into not only just some of the questions that you and I have for Lee that we think set the stage, but also we really want to dive deeper based upon what the audience was looking for, and uh, we're so thankful for those questions we received. No, extremely excited, because it's usually us Chelsea fans trying to be you know, in, a, in an echo chamber and trying to assess players that we have some kind of an emotional connection with, but... Having somebody of Lee's caliber, obviously, with the experience that he has in the game, and and most importantly, as a neutral perspective, offering insights into what goes in behind the scenes. I mean, it's it's an art shrouded in secrecy. Let's be very, very honest with it. So to have somebody who's willing to divulge a little bit and help us understand what goes on, I think it's it's a massive, massive bonus for us. So I'm, I'm extremely grateful that he took out time, especially during the transfer window to come on and um, give us insight. So very, very grateful. And more than the listeners, I think I'm looking forward to this one most of all. So thanks a lot, Lee. Well, before we jump into the general questions, we just want to say thanks as always to you. You make the podcast what we do. You're amazing. The listener community have of Chelsea supporters who tune in. The best way to support the show, obviously, as always, patreon.com forward slash London Blue Pod. But hey, there's plenty of free ways to support the podcast too. Five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Amazing. Great way to support the show. And also, we passed that 24,000 mark on YouTube. So hey, we'd love to hit 25,000 before we get on this summer tour in about a week's time, just over a week from when you're listening to this. We will be in Raleigh Durham when Chelsea play Wrexham having done a live pod and we love to kind of capstone that with 25,000 YouTube subscribers so it doesn't cost you anything and who knows maybe if you're on the ground there and you're subscribed to the channel you might get something cool I don't know that might be an option but look it helps us differentiate ourselves from those big media outlets as the small independent Chelsea content corner of the world that we like to claim but look Lee before we get into all this I gave a brief rundown of where you've been, about your journey, about the football conversation of your bibliography, as it were, if we were kind of filling out your Wikipedia page. So why don't you maybe just give us a little bit more, give the listeners a little bit more understanding about yourself and how you broke into the world of scouting and football? Sure. I think that I've had something of a non-traditional route into where I am now and 
Um, certainly, I don't. I don't think there's many people who've gone kind of the same way that I have with it. But my background is in writing. Um, I used to blog extensively um, on mostly on tactics, not on scouting and recruitment. My, I started really writing about tactics. Uh, I don't even know how long ago now. Um, it led to us starting up um, Total Football Analysis, which is still a, a website and a consultancy, which is still going. Um, I was kind of the, the main writing focus behind that, if you like. I, I was the one that started out pushing all the articles and then we kind of grew from that point onwards. But at some point while I was I was just writing about, about football, I was contacted by um, Rene Maric, who last was the assistant manager at Leeds United under Jesse March. Um, and Rene was a writer at the time for Spielverlagerung, which is a, a German website which has an English language section, if you like, and really well-renowned for maybe a little bit overly complex at times, but the the theory and the content that they, they wrote about was really good. Um, Rene asked me if I'd be interested in contributing and told me that I should be doing more stuff about, you know, more complex series, if you like. Um, and from that point on, I just kind of kept writing until eventually I was tagged. I kept getting tagged on social media and Twitter on for jobs that were becoming available. So recruitment or tactical analyst jobs all over the UK. But because I was based in Aberdeen, none of them were really feasible. Um, I replied to one with a bit of a rant saying that this is all great, but these things are never local, if you like. And at that point, I suddenly got a, a message in my my inbox from Hibernian, from a, a guy called Martin Christie. He was a technical scout there, asking if I wanted to do some work with him. And it kind of snowballed from there. So I moved from Hibernian to St Mirren um, in their promotion season when Martin moved then to Partick Thistle, on to Dundee United doing opposition analysis. Um, and then last year year before i went into aberdeen as the recruitment analyst i'm actually an aberdeen fan um so very happy to get the chance to go and work for my boyhood club um darren mowbray who's just taken on the head of recruitment job at southampton actually took me in there um and there were a lot of different um there was never any recruitment data recruitment done at Aberdeen, and I was kind of the first person doing it there. So we had quite a successful recruitment campaign last summer. Um, that led to conversations with Velez um, about a full-time chief scout role, which I took up. I did offer Aberdeen the chance to counter-offer, but they said they couldn't match the offer I was given by Velez. So I was on my travels, if you like, even if it was just remotely for the most part. And yeah, now I'm the chief scout for, for Velez in the, as you said, Spanish fourth division, but very much with aspirations to be to be gaining promotion this season. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible, especially coming from, um, you mentioned Rene Maric is somebody that uh, a lot of us tactics fanatics have followed his journey very, very closely. Uh, the blog obviously had its own, um, you know, peak time where everybody was reading what was going on there. Uh, he's obviously like he's made the the German first division as a coach as a as an assistant manager then basically moved to Leeds so it was fantastic to know that you could make that alternate journey as uh, somebody who's you know analyzing the game on a blog but uh, people within the game are still keenly finding others within that circle and then trying to make um, you know get those people in it so I think that's a fascinating way to to put across how difficult it has been for you, uh, I, I would say like 
taking that non-traditional journey isn't easy. And uh, super props. I think it's it's fantastic to know. Uh, my question would be arguably um, the most, I think, at this point, uh, one that a lot of people are curious about. So what would you say are your primary roles and responsibilities at uh, well CF as Chief Scout? And what does a regular day look like for you uh, as the Chief Scout at, at the club? Um, my my day is is very different each day. That there's no real regular day. Um, primarily as chief scout, my responsibility is in talent ID. So uh, I work predominantly in the first team setting. We we don't do any work with the youth team. The the youth team at Velez is still populated by by local young players who there's a lot of talent around the Malaga area. Um, Mostly, I suppose, due to the, the advantageous climate down there that's sunny all year round. So there's a lot of football played and a lot of talented young players. So for my role, I'm looking at strengthening the first team squad. So um, we have a, a team of voluntary video scouts that work with us. Um, I'm just looking to expand that now take some people on more into a recruitment analyst role, if you like. So to kind of help me a little bit with the data side of things. But for the last, well, since I took post last October, um, I have been using a combination of data, live and video scouting to identify and shortlist players who can strengthen the Vela's first team squad for next season. So we tend to maintain what we call our ranking system. So for each position in the team, and of course, for some positions, uh, there will be more than one ranking. So for example, um, for a right back position, we have two separate profiles for right back. So we have a shortlist for one profile, a shortlist for another profile. Um, we maintain a top 10 list, if you like, for those and, and players that we would ideally take in ranked from one to 10. We then have a system beyond that where we have a shadow list, if you like, for the same. And it's um, more a sub 23, we call it, uh, ranking. So at Velez in the Spanish fourth tier, we're only allowed to register a set amount of over 23 players. So players over the age of 23 years old. Um, but we can register as many players under 23 as we like. So obviously if we find a, an under 23 player who we think is good enough for our first team squad, from a squad building perspective, it becomes very important that we recognise that and we have scouted and analysed them properly and that we're in a position to take them if, if we want to. Um, so a lot of the job is based around IDing people for those different roles and profiles that we have and making sure that we have up-to-date reports, up-to-date data, and that we have them ranked correctly in terms of the qualities they can bring to us. When you look at the way maybe the role has changed over your time starting to now, and there's a lot of accounts online that will just take a a player radar and use that as a de facto, this is how a player performs. There are people who take the very specific clip of the best highlights from someone and post onto YouTube and say, this is how great this player is going to be. What's the balance between the numbers and using the data and the eye test? And where does that land today? And how's that maybe, how have you seen that evolve? Yeah, it, it's all part of the overall picture of a player. I, I think that these things, and, and you're right to highlight those two things specifically, radars, pizza charts. Um, I use both. Um, absolutely use both in my analysis and our reports. We use both because it gives you a snapshot of the player, but that's all that it gives you. It gives you an idea of that player's performance in terms of event data. So basically data on the ball. It doesn't give you anything beyond that. 
Um, the highlights packages are probably the bane of my life. Um, if I have to listen or watch another highlights package with it kicks in with hardcore rap halfway through, I just don't think I've got it in me to watch many more, to be honest. And this is the time of year that the agents are really pushing all that across. Um, but again, those highlights, and to be honest with you, I will never treat a highlight package, whether on YouTube or it's been sent by an agent or an agent, a player's representative. I'll never treat that as video scouting. That is very much just a absolute surface level touch because you know that that's been clipped in such a way to make the player look good. So the way that we see it, there's kind of three strands to player recruitment. So there's the data side of it, which is the, the pizza chart, the radar chart, the bar chart, whatever you're using to surface and show the data, that's important, but it's important to understand that's only part of the process. There's the video and live scouting. So we will typically watch a player play at least three full 90 minutes against the varying opposition, home and away, um, against opposition that are towards the top of the league, preferably to give an idea of how they perform against the strongest players in any, whichever league they're in at the time. And the third strand is the, the soft side of it, if you like, and that's more character-based. So um, we're very lucky at Velez. We have two people who are um, involved at director level, our, our director of football and chief executive, are Magnus Pearson and Jesper Norberg, both of whom are former um, Swedish professional football players. Um, They've coached all over the world. Magnus has coached Malmo. He's coached the, the Estonian national team. Um, so they have a huge network um, that we're able to dip into. So typically, if we're interested in a player, we also get an idea of their character, how they are in the dressing room, how they are in terms of work rate, because part of, of Velez's recruitment strategy is that we want to play an intensive style of football, an intensive game model. And as such, we need players who can match that intensity and they have the work rate and the attitude on the pitch that we're looking for. So uh, all three strands kind of pull together to eventually create a picture of the player. And that, that's kind of what we look at as a as an overall picture, if you like. Now, at the, at the expense of uh, earning a little bit of your ire, my next question will not be uh, very specifically, so please forgive me, but throughout your extensive experience in the job, what would you say is the toughest aspect of your job? Um, I think that as I've gradually got into positions where I'm more involved with decision-making, when you first start as a scout or in recruitment, you're very, very rarely going to be involved at any level with the final decision. You will go away on your assignments, you will complete your reports and send them in. And to begin with, 70% of the time, you probably won't even get a reply from the club or the, the people that you're sending them into other than thanks. And there's no feedback. There's no there's no sense of, of whether that is what they're looking for. And that's actually something that I'm trying really hard to change, especially at Velez, when I talk about the fact that we have volunteer video scouts. What we're looking to do is create a pathway for these people to gain entry into part-time or full-time work within football. So we we give people access to Scout, we give people access to data, and we'll give regular feedback. We have regular scouting meetings where we catch up and discuss what's going on in the club, and we give feedback and, and we give context around what we're asking people to do, which is really important. But I think that as I've gotten more and more involved around the kind of decision-making aspect, what I found difficult is really understanding that 
what I used to think about recruitment and, and recruitment strategy doesn't always mix. So, for example, when I used to write for Total Football Analysis, there's a lot of recruitment pieces for me on Total Football Analysis. If anybody's interested in kind of seeing my thought process, you can find it all there. Um, but I used to be adamant that I would go into a transfer window absolutely prepared in terms of these are the players that we're going to target. We're going to target them right at the start of the transfer window. We're going to get all of our business done quickly and then we're going to move on. What I've found is that you can't be quite as proactive in a recruitment sense because you're dealing with football players. So ideally, if it was just names on a spreadsheet, absolutely fine. You could do that football manager style. You could go in and sign all your players and that's it, you're finished. But you have to be reactive to the market conditions and the way the market's moving. But just to give you an example, this season we are targeting a right back. We, we have one signed now, but a lot of the right backs that were originally in our ranking list came off the board very quickly. And there was just a run on right backs for no apparent reason. And it became something that we had to react to more quickly as opposed to being organised and proactive. So I think that what I've learned, what I've found difficult is adapting my own mindset to make sure that Whereas I want to be organised and proactive and understand exactly what players we're looking at. I think you have to have a mindset that you're willing to, to adapt the way that you're looking at things, to change the way that you're thinking about players based on current availability of talent. It's, it's different at Chelsea's level when you can go out and spend 80, 90, 100 million pounds on a player if that's what you want to do. I know that's not necessarily what has happened, but there has been a, a huge level of spending. But when you're you're dealing at the level of the market that I am at the moment, you have to be more flexible and more adaptable. And I think that's something that's been a challenge for me to learn about more over the course of the last year. When when you look at things that the public is unaware of, we talked about a couple of things about the maybe three pillars you had in terms of the the pie charts or the the pizza charts of the data circles, the in-person scouting, and then also the character representation of a player or their makeup. Are there other things that you can think of off the top of your head that when you were looking on the outside in and now looking at the inside out, that are just some of the myths that you could debunk about what people assume scouting is and what scouting actually is? Um, I think, I mean, again, if, if we talk about it from a Chelsea perspective, I think that at the moment scouting is very much what you expect it looks like, I think, at Chelsea. Um, I know that there's quite a department at the club at the moment. And I think that because of the the nature of the club and the level the club is operating at, you're you're capable of going out. And for example, the, the European Under-21 Championships have just finished and whether or not we touch on on whether Levi Colwell is going to come back to your club or not will remains to be seen, I think. But I don't doubt that Chelsea probably had two or three people at that tournament live just watching all the games, taking reports on the players. Those players will also be video scouted. There'll be databases with all their names on them. And, and that's the level of scouting that you would expect at Chelsea. I think that people sometimes overlook how important squad building is as an overall arching theme and again that probably ties in a little bit to Chelsea because I don't think there was a lot of squad building thought when Todd Bowley first came into the club it seemed more scattergun it almost felt as if if any player was being linked to a Premier League club then Chelsea would also be interested for a period of time and and that's not sustainable and I would say that that doesn't seem like it's still the case at the club now. It seems like things are more streamlined and a little bit more sensible at the moment. But 
I do think that squad building is something that is extremely important. So at Vélez, again, I can speak about my own experiences there. As I said, we have set profiles for each position, but those profiles feed into a game model, which is how we want the team to play, um, very much based upon the kind of intensity and wanting to push forward, be an attacking, pressing team, if you like. So it's very important that you're not just you're not just thinking about players from a scouting perspective as this player is a good player. Because take midfielders, for example. In Spain, midfielders in the fourth tier and third tier of Spain are very much what you would expect thinking about Spanish football. They're very possession-orientated. They're very good at on the ball. But they can slow the game down because the pace of the game at that level is the same as you see sometimes in La Liga. When you watch a La Liga game, the pace of the game is slower. And part of that is cultural, it's part of that is climate because it's so warm in some places that the game just slows down. But because our model is very specific in what we're looking for, for a number six and a number eight, we need to be more intense in those positions. So we're very much trying to look past that when we look at these players to think, could they operate quickly? Is there enough evidence when you watch them live on a video of them receiving the ball and then showing examples of when they speed up the game as opposed to only slowing down the game? So I think team building and recruitment models are very, very important if you're going to have a sustainable long-term strategy for recruitment within your club. Otherwise, anybody could just go out and spend 50, 60 million on, on the next big thing if you like and hope that they fit the club. But the best teams, the Brightons and the Brentfords, very much recruit at the moment in such a way that they're recruiting for the model football that their their club wants to play. And I think that's what's proven at the moment to be sustainable going forward. Uh, so super, Lee. I mean, one more question, I think, uh, from an outsider's perspective. Um, so just quoting an example from uh, The Nowhere Men by Michael Calvin's book about scouting and recruitment. Uh, there was a little bit about how Manchester City had, um, I think, almost 25-plus page dossier on uh, Alexis Sanchez, talking about how their scouts had stalked him to different places, making sure they knew which restaurants he went to, talked to his friends, talked to his family to try and find out what exactly this guy likes, how he's like as a person. So are there any similar anecdotes or personal stories that you'd like to share with us with regards to you know, how they changed your opinion about scouting. Not as intense, but, you know, maybe just something that changed a little bit in terms of how you look at players as, as human beings. There are some that I probably can't repeat. <laughs> More, I think, when I was at Aberdeen, there were a couple of instances of of stories about a player's activities <laughs> that, that maybe meant that they weren't right for us and that we couldn't take and I certainly wouldn't be able to repeat them in a podcast or, or we'd be liable so it's, it's not for the best um, but in terms of uh, we've never got to the point where and I don't know anybody within recruitment who has ever followed a player or anything like that but absolutely it's absolutely normal practice for us to take background information usually from a player or a coach who has worked with the clip, the player before. Um, one of our targets at the moment has a, has played with a player who's in our current squad. So we've got a lot of background information on that player on their their work habits, uh, their family situation, things like that. So you can start to understand if the player in question that you're looking at is somebody who has a, a family, a young family, for example, or if they're liable to be out partying all the time. I think there was one at Velez before I came 
um, that's been referenced a couple of times this window who um, he was a very, very good player. He didn't end up being taken by the club at the time, so probably safe to speak about it. He was an extremely good player, but he had a lot of friends who were incredibly good players. So while he was a good player, they were incredibly good players and they were all playing at um, top flight level, if you like, for teams who would be around Champions League. Um, and it turns out that he was spending all those weekends partying with them because they had all the money and they were doing what they wanted. So the, the lifestyle of the player wasn't conducive to, to what we were looking for. Um, but that's when, I mean, you referenced The Nowhere Men. It's a fantastic book by Michael Calvin that talks a lot about, it looks at scouts and not so much. The, there are elements in it of, of the use of data, but that was very much at the time before data became mainstream and when it was written and when he was out with those scouts. And there was one, a consultant I worked with at Aberdeen who was absolutely fantastic for that. He was um, older. <laughs> I think he would might be saying he was older. And he was just consulting. He'd retired but didn't like retirement. He used to be a head of recruitment at a club in England and didn't like retirement. So he came in to, to help out with recruitment. And you'd be sitting in a meeting and a player would just be mentioned just as a, you know, this player might be an option player X. He's currently playing for the under 21s for Ireland, for example. And within five minutes, because this person, this consultant would pull out their mobile phone and send a text message. Within five minutes, he would have references from three different people within the game around that person's work habits and, and their physical attributes, what how how many intense sprints they manage when they're training, things like that. And it was just incredible. I think that level of networking is something that's often overlooked still within scouting. It's very important. But it is, you know, again, only part of the puzzle. Well, we are going to continue this wonderful conversation that we're having with Lee in just a moment, but we owe our sponsors a little quick ad break. So we want to thank them for supporting the show. Make you look right back. That's right. Bird Dog's stretch khaki shorts are designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg, giving you a truly sculpted look. They fit way better than regular shorts that are made of a stiff, restrictive cotton. Bird Dog's uses anti-stink sweat wicking fabric that keeps you cool and dry all day long. So look, I've got a pair. Dan's got a pair. Nick's got a pair. We actually love them. But not only do you get bird dogs right now, if you buy, you get a free tumbler. That's right. You get a free Yeti tumbler. All you have to do is go to birddogs.com forward slash pool, P-O-O-L. Enter the promo code P-O-O-L for a free Yeti style tumbler with your order. That's birddogs.com forward slash pool for a free Yeti style tumbler. You won't want to take your bird dogs off. We promise you. All right, and just a reminder, before we get into some of those initial questions, in just over a week's time, we will be joining Chelsea on many of the tour stops they're taking across the U.S. for the summer tour here. We're going to be in Raleigh, Philly, Atlanta, and D.C. That's right, four of the five stops. The London's Blue Crew will be there. We'll be doing some live pods with all of the wonderful individual chapters who are helping to put on a great time out for you and your friends. If you're going to be in attendance, look. we look forward to saying hi to all of you if you're there. But uh, if you're not, we'll record them and we will upload them just like we do typically so that you can you know take in the fun if you weren't able to make it there personally but look lee we have to jump in we're going to skew this maybe a little bit more chelsea related you've done a great job of maybe even kind of teeing up some of the conversation by mentioning levi colwell a little bit earlier on the back of uh, a phenomenal under 21 euro campaign where we saw england hoist the trophy um maybe just 
starting into that though from like the tactic of scouting younger football players how do you how do you kind of do that in a way that is is super sustainable considering the fact that you know at, at a younger age there's a lot of concern probably for the developmental aspect of an individual you know you don't necessarily know how you're going to project what someone at six years old is going to do at 18 six-year-old me to 38 year old me completely different conversation so how do you start to build a thought process around kind of that type of integration or that type of scouting that is sustainable and also kind of can be considerate to the player, the player's family and the environment as well. Yeah, I think it's very difficult. Um, I've never claimed to be a youth scout. I'm, I'm not. Um, I, I respect that side of the scouting profession, if you like, but it's not something that I have an eye for. I, I coach one of my son's plays. Um, so what would he be? in English terms, would be under 13s next season. So they're just progressing to 11-a-side football from, from playing at the smaller uh, the smaller age groups. And now they're going to 11-a-side. I can't tell if any of the players that we play with or play against are, are going to make professional players. There are some fantastically talented young people, but whether, I mean, at that point you're hitting puberty, you're having growth spurts, there's so much going on with a child's body, it becomes difficult to to really assess but if you talk about um, scouting and recruitment young players for the first team level I think that there's similar elements to it when you look at a young player so if you're looking for say for example you're looking at a young left-sided centre-back so it would be a Levi Colwell kind of profile and Chelsea signed Benoit Badiashile who has a similar profile to Levi Colwell whether he's as good or not remains to be seen. Um, I have my own opinion on which player I would rather have in my squad, uh, but there we go. But when you're looking at these players and you're scouting them, so there's a, a similar profile at the moment still in Lyon who played for France at that under-21 championships, Castello Luqueba. Um, There's a lot of strong links to him today to RB Leipzig in the Bundesliga because Manchester City are about to take Josco Guardiol from, from Leipzig and the left side of the centre-back position is going to be free. So these chains are kind of what you see in recruitment at the top level as players move from one chain to the next and one level to the next. But when you look at players like Lukeba, like Badiashili, like Levi Colwell, what you're looking at when they're younger is that they're showing enough examples of what you look for at the position without needing them to be the absolute finished product. So when you talk about a left-sided centre-back at the moment, all three of those players are fantastic in possession of the ball. Um, obviously, Colwell has this this whole sense of the history of the last season under De Zerbi with his putting the foot on the ball to attract pressure, to then play through the pressure, which is something that centre-backs have been asked to do more and more. But more than that, you're looking for the ability to punch the ball through lines. You're looking for the ability to switch play. You're looking for the ability to receive the ball on one foot and play quickly on the other foot and just to be able to receive under pressure, even at centre-back. But what you don't expect to see at that age and at younger age groups is a player who's able to do it either consistently or all the time. So scouting for young players very much becomes a case of looking to identify traits and looking to find examples of what the, when they're doing the things that you want them to do. And at that point in time, you're then adding into your reports thinking that you believe this player is coachable in this trait because you've seen evidence. And then generally we'd, we'd timestamp and have video that we'd link into. This is where we've seen evidence of this behaviour or these passes or this play in possession. 
Um, and that way, when you're taking the player forward because they're a young player, you're not necessarily saying this player is for now for the first team. You're saying this player is good enough for 800, 1,000 minutes at our first team, 1,500 minutes in our first team for next season. And then going on from there, they would then have a platform to build on. So Lee, uh, Dan just mentioned that the next set of questions would arguably be skewed a little towards Chelsea. So um, just taking our current situation into stock, we've had a recruitment team around for arguably almost a year, but our new coaching team has just started work from the 1st of July. So wanted to ask you, does the scouting team's work end after the player has been signed? Like, do they just hand them over to the coaching team? Or is there an input or a link between those two departments to ensure that there is a seamless integration? I think ostensibly that when a player is signed, that is generally the end of your involvement with that player. From a scouting perspective, if anything, when you sign a player, you're already supposed to be working on replacing that player because that's kind of the way the cycle works. Um, but what I would say is really important within scouting is that when a player is signed, there's then a feedback loop. So if the player is signed and brought into the first team environment, it's really important that you have regular communication with the, the coaching staff to understand if that player was what you thought it what they were when you, you recruited them. So, for example, again, when you're talking about the left-sided centre-back, when they then come into the first-team setup at Vélez, for example, where, again, we have player profiles that, that build in and connect into our game model so that everything should come together in a cohesive package. When we sign a player for a left-sided centre-back or a number six, we would then find out from the coaching staff if they fit in possession in terms of is their passing good enough when they do the possession drills and training which are rondos or, or six versus fours, for example, and, and small spaces where the player will be stressed in possession. Do they show enough quality in the ball? Defensively, are they good enough in terms of their positioning, their movement of their body, how they open up their hips, um, how they're able to play against strong target men type forward or quick forwards? I think all of this information that you can get fed back to you and how the coaching staff perceive a player when they sign compared to what you said about the player is all really important because then you can feed that into your development of the coaching team, the, the scouting team, sorry, the recruitment team to make sure that they understand exactly what the feedback and thoughts were from the coaching staff and how that marries up to what you all said about the player. When... It's gone wrong. Let's say that you've scouted a player and that there's for some reason, you talked about this feedback loop, but it may not become evident maybe in year one, but maybe you know two years down the line, you realize that there was a gap in the analysis portion to then the actual development portion. What's the process look like to update your methodology to in order to maybe kind of I think about it from like a coding perspective, like you 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 rewrite code all the time to try to get it to be more operationally proficient. Like, how do you take that into consideration? What are the things that you do in order to kind of eliminate the same mistakes from being repeated necessarily or uncovering those flaws? Yeah, I think that from a personal point of view, you have to be resilient. Um, you're never going to have a 100% strike rate. Um, one of my ones that I always hold my hands up is that I thought that Bruno Fernandes was going to be an absolute flop when United signed him. I, I didn't think he would fit. I didn't think he would play very, very well in the Premier League. And Whereas I don't think he's been the world beater that some people think he does, I think he has done a lot better than, than I expected. But 
it's very, very rare that it's going to take two years for a player to to be flagged up as being that wasn't the right choice. It tends to be quicker than that. But when you speak about coding, that, that's something that's really important. I'm self-taught in coding. Um, when I first got into football, I was very much using Excel and Tableau and that was it. But I've taught myself Python um, since then, so I code extensively in Python. And we have a lot of our player models. So when I talk about the, the player profiles that we have that, again, connect to the game model, I have um, models that generate data that give us a score for the player based on those profiles. And we use Python extensively for that. And there's been a lot of perhaps, I mean, Magnus won't mind me saying he's the director of football and, and He's very Swedish, so he's very forthright in his views. And, and we've had a few meetings, um, like we are just now on Zoom or in person, when we've talked about the models and the code and the data that we are using. If my model doesn't fit his eye test for the players, then he's very quick to question why that is. And it can be difficult because the, the model, any model, I'm sure you know yourself, that any model within code is only as good as the data. So the data is the data. It's not, we can't change that or affect that, but the data doesn't necessarily always reflect the player, if you like. So it's not always exactly what you're looking for, but the data is what it is. If, if you think a player is a good striker, but they haven't scored for 10 games and that's reflected in the data, I'm afraid that's just the way that it goes. So yeah, I think that there, there are always times where you have to have a constant dialogue. You have to be resilient. You have to be willing to to be open-minded and to also to stand your ground at times as well when, as part of a recruitment department. You have to have a voice. If I, I've worked with a lot of scouts who've been very quick to not say anything in meetings, but then very vocal outside of meetings. And my point of view is that you're never going to develop and get better if you're not going to be the one who, who stands up in a meeting and has an opinion and has a voice. Yes. So the, the bottom line question for us before we conclude this section would be, as a neutral observer, as somebody immune to criticism from Chelsea Football Twitter, as not having any kind of connections whatsoever, what would your verdict be on Chelsea's recruitment strategy? And uh, not necessarily on how well it is sort of translated, but just the vision of it. Like, uh, what would your, you know, verdict, final verdict or or sort of pathway on that would be? I think we're at a point right now where we're almost drawing a line under the recruitment strategy at Chelsea. So you almost have the, the point where the takeover happens. And from that point until maybe about a month ago, you can pretty much draw a line under it from there, I think, because the, in the first stages, it was very, it was very much, it was haphazard, to be honest. There were a lot of players coming in. There was a lot of money spent. And that's not to say that the players who were coming in weren't good players, but there was no there was no joined up thinking behind it to an extent. It was almost a case of here's a, a shiny new player. Let's go out and sign them. Mark Cucurella, for example. I happen to think that Mark Cucurella is a much better footballer than we've seen at Chelsea. I think that he is not a player who I would have thought would have commanded the fee that Chelsea paid for him. I think that there wasn't enough evidence of performance beyond that one season at Brighton, really. Even in Spain, he, he was never that outstanding for the position. But he is a good football player. But when he was signed and Ben Shilwell is also part of the squad, that, that there's just a lot of muddled up thinking. But within that, 
there have been a lot of good players added to the squad. And Enzo Fernandez is has the potential to be one of the top five midfielders in the world for the next what eight, ten years. And that is something that you should be willing to spend a significant amount of capital on if you have that capital. So Chelsea have done the right thing and taken him in. I think what we're seeing now is a change in strategy and a change, a shift in the way that things are going, which is how it should be. I think that there's still a lot of confusion about how many people at top level of recruitment strategy Chelsea brought in. There's still a little bit of doubt over who exactly has the final say over which areas of recruitment, which is, I think, fair. Um, And now with a new coaching team, you're hoping that the conversations aren't simply about going to the new coaching team and saying, right, what kind of players do you like? It should have been about, this is about a Chelsea player is for this position. So this is what we're looking at. And the coaching staff understand that and come in to work around it. I think it's the most dangerous time for a recruitment team and and the recruitment strategy of a club are when they change coaches and suddenly they completely change the way that they're trying to recruit and type of players are trying to recruit. There has to be an overall plan, which you hope Chelsea have in place because they've gone out and taken so many top-level executives. Well, we have a ton of listener questions that we want to make sure we get to in this episode. So we're going to take our final ad break. And when we come back, it's your turn. That's right. We're taking your questions and putting them at the feet of Lee to give us an answer. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. All right, Lee. So we have some questions from our listeners and some of the things that we've got so many, some of them were actually already answered through what we've done already, which is great. The best way to prepare for answering a question is to answer it before we even get to it. (laughs) So I think Sam and I are going to try to make sure that we comb these a little bit and get to ones that we didn't touch on yet. And we're going to start with Deck, who asked the question about what are the important, not just off-the-ball events that aren't picked up or are not picked up well enough by data? I think this references back to the earlier conversation we were having around the importance of live scouting because the dubstep YouTube highlight reel does not capture <laughs> what happens when the ball is not at a player's feet. Those highlight reels are just a bane of my life. <laughs> I think they always <laughs> will be. Um I think that we, when you talk about data and you talk about video scouting, there are elements that you don't get. So you're almost looking for the soft side of recruitment at that point, as well as the physical side. I think physically it's very hard to capture from a, a player's performance from a data perspective, unless sometimes when you're in the final stages of negotiation, you will be given access, you know, that you all see the vests that players wear now at training and matches that that measure the intensity of their sprints, how many intense sprints they've done, the distance run, everything else. You will at times get access to that, usually through the agents, um, when you're close to completing a transfer, but never at the start. So when you're looking at a player through video or even through data and your director of football or your, your coach comes to you and says, how quick is he? And you go, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I mean, it, quick it, pace is relative. So if I'm looking at a left winger, for example, I have to be taken into account. And the three games, say I'm watching three live games on Scout in a morning, looking at this left winger. How quick are the right backs that he's facing? Are they all around the same quickness? Is one very quick, one slow, one's kind of medium? 
how do I then judge the players based off that? And that becomes where you you hear people talk about the scouting eye and the scout's eye and how important it is for a scout to, to train their eye and have experience of live and video scouting. That's what you're talking about. It's the, the live off the ball movements. And beyond that, you're then looking at their reactions. So again, we talked about character and getting character references. There are players who feedback will come back, not a good teammate. What does that mean? It generally means that when a, a, the player tries to play a pass, the pass doesn't come off. You see their hands come up, they're gesticulating. What we want is a player who transitions straight away when they lose the ball from attack to defence. You, you want that immediate press and counter press. And if a player is busy shouting at the referee, shouting at his teammate, shouting at somebody in the stands who's giving him a stick, then you don't get that that same intensity and that same switch. So these things are all important, but again, they can't be picked up on in data. So it tends to be things around that. That There was one time I was um, asked to go and scout a striker. Um, and it was when I was with Hibernian, so very, very new. And I, I'm always early. My, I, I can't help it. I always, if I hate being even on time to me, feels late. So I'm always early to things. So when I go to a stadium live, I'm always there from the start and you see the players come out and warm up. And if I hadn't been there in the stadium, I wouldn't have noticed the fact that this striker had a back brace on. So he had a, a back brace and I could see the, the trainer was out giving him some treatment on his back and it was under his shirt. So if I just got there to kick off, I wouldn't have known that he was wearing that because you couldn't tell under the top. But I factored into my report that the player didn't play well, but he seems to be injured. And that's the kind of level of detail that you don't get just by watching video from when the kickoff starts or from data. And that's, I mean, incredible insight. As somebody who's a hobby scout, I think just sitting here has been a one-hour masterclass for me. So personally, I mean, thank you so much, Lee. Hopefully the conversations will happen off the board as well. Um, so the next question is a very interesting one from Ricardo. Uh, he says... Are the players scouted for specific positions which would plug holes or upgrade positions in the current academy setup? Or are they scouted because they hit a certain threshold after which they become a small risk, high reward signing? So basically signings that you cannot afford to miss out on. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Um, I think generally, I think there should be a link up between the youth team and the first team. Um, there should be an understanding of what players are coming through and which positions that you will be looking to embed into your first team from the youth team. That will be taken into account, but I think that at the, the professional level, you cannot put too much stock on that because it's a win-now environment. You're not, you're never in a position realistically as a football club where you're thinking, ah, well, we, we're not going to write this season off. We'll try and finish mid-table, lower mid-table, just keep our noses out of relegation. We, we won't worry about Europe because we know that in two years' time, we've got the striker who we think is going to come in and make a huge difference. It doesn't work like that. So what you're looking to do is have a, a continuous pipeline of talent. So typically when you're scouting and, and recruiting for the first team, again, it comes down to squad building. So it becomes about planning contracts if if I know that I've got a striker coming that all of my youth coaches youth scouts everyone at the club is extremely excited that this striker is coming and he's been scoring 50 goals a season at youth team level then if I'm signing a striker I will typically be looking to sign a striker on a three-year contract or four-year 
probably four year now the way contracts are working. Certainly not eight years like um, your Chelsea seem to be doing all the time and, and bending certain rules to do so. I uh, don't know how much trouble I'm going to get in for saying that with your listenership, but there we go. Um, so when you sign a player for four years, realistically, as much as the fans will look at that and say, well, we've got this player for four years, you don't. You have them for two years. Because after those two years, when a player has two years left in his contract, absolute power sits with the player. So at that point, if the player is not going to sign a new contract, an extension, then you're straight away thinking about moving them on and selling them. So I want a striker to come in on a four-year contract so that in two years when my youth players is ready to come into the first team, if I have to move that first player on, then I have a replacement coming through the youth team. If I don't have to move them on and they're, they're performing well, then the player from the youth team still comes in and picks up first team minutes, but there's not so much pressure. So there's no finite 100% answer. There's so much grey within recruitment and squad building that I think that it becomes more of an art form at times to make sure that you're thinking about how all these things link up together. Speaking on that, we had a question from PTM just asking a little bit more about how do you know if you're doing an effective job as a scout and like what are the measures that you're using to evaluate it? I feel like there's maybe some general ones that we could assume like, hey, if the team gets promoted and the players that I scouted contributed to that promotion success, that is a straight line to me and the good job that I did and my team did. But are there other things maybe we're not considering or is that the incorrect way to look at it? think there are teams out there at the moment who are putting quite a lot of research into how they evaluate their scouts in terms of this, for example, I know it is quite prevalent in American sports and NFL in particular, that players, uh, scouts now are very much being graded on how predictive their reports have been. So if they've, in NFL, for example, if you're scouting college game, if you're giving certain grades on these players and these players then go on to play at that level out with your organisation, that would go in your favour. There's a lot of research going on different clubs just now on exactly how they evaluate scouts because there is no 100% way to do it. Um, There's no right or wrong answer. I have no idea if I'm doing a good job or not. I don't. Obviously, we get feedback and the players who who we sign tend to look like good players when they come into first team, but they go on to the coaches and then the coaches develop them and plug them in and the coaches are, are responsible for development and for tactics and for everything else beyond that. So, I really take very, very little credit other than the fact that I'm identifying players that that's it. So I think going forward to answer the question, there is no answer. Um, I think it's something that's really interesting and I would like to spend some time at some point trying to develop a system where I could be more predictive and understand how predictive my analysis has been. But that will take quite a lot of time and quite a lot of manpower and quite a lot of technical understanding and I'm not sure that my self-taught Python training is going to hold up to that because when you're self-taught, if you break a code, it takes a long time to fix it. Um, So yeah, if if anyone's listening that wants to get into it, then absolutely go and learn coding in the first instance, but learn it properly. Don't do the way that I did it. Um, All right. The next question is from Chris Riley. But um, before we get into it, I think, Lee, you would know better than anybody else that when it comes to special talents, there are, I would say, two categories. One is hazard and the other is haphazard. Um, so, you know, how do you account for somebody that's lazy but special, say uh, an Eden Hazard or a Ryan Shirky? 
And how often are they disregarded? And is it more about the manager and or system? And the second sub question is, what are the biggest things you would say, that's fine, we can coach that or we can coach out those things out of them? That's quite a good question. I, I love Shirky. I think that he is fantastic. If anyone caught him for France at the, the under 21s, he goes, he lit up matches, but he lit them up in small spaces. So he would get on the ball and do something spectacular, and then you wouldn't see him again for 20 minutes. So there are similarities with Eden Hazard there, I think. Um, I think it's very specific. I I, I love wingers. That, that's my, my favourite position to scout. Wingers are great. I, I love ball carriers. I love players who can dominate one versus one and who are strong and powerful and quick and, and nimble all of the physical adjectives, adjectives if you like but it's very very specific to exactly what you're recruiting for so again at Velez we our, our game model is 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1 for next season with a, a number 10 who'll sit behind a 6-8 and a 6 and then the two wingers so the wingers have different roles within our system but the constant within our system is work rate and intensity and a willingness to press and press the first line. We we want to stop the opposition from being able to play. And as such, there are players that we have looked at and I've really liked and data's really liked when it's came up to the point where I'm asking Magnus to have a look. He's coming straight back and saying no because he doesn't think the player has the work rate. Or we're getting the reference from from former players or coaches and they're saying he won't run. He won't defend. He just wants to attack all the time. I think it takes a very specific style, a very specific coach and a very specific game model to allow that individual talent to really thrive properly. If you look at Lionel Messi, um, Lionel Messi over the last three, four, five years doesn't run. I, I was stunned. I went to see Barcelona live a good few years ago now. I went to a Champions League game when they played Atletico Madrid, first leg was in the new Camp and I was there and I was really excited to see Messi play football and I was stunned by how little time he actually spent running, even at that point. He stood in the centre circle for a good five minutes, just not moving. He didn't press, didn't run, didn't try and defend but within the team context, you know that they're willing to have that because of the genius of the player but that doesn't work in all cases. So, for example, at Manchester City at the moment, Manchester City under Pep Guardiola do not have any players of that ilk. They do not have an Eden Hazard or Lionel Messi, even Erling Haaland, who doesn't do it very well, but he is expected to press and work against the ball. The same thing will be true for Chelsea under Maurizio Pochettino. He's a coach who will who wants all of his players in a linked-up system defending and working against the ball. There's no room for an absolute exhibitionist player, if you like. But when you do get those players and you do get them into the right system and the right environment, they can be difference makers. So it's very much a question that's almost at the heart of recruitment at the moment in terms of do you want to build a team around a player? So are you willing to say we're going to only have nine outfield players against the ball because we know what that 10th player can do in possession? Or are you not willing to make that allowances? And I think more and more in the modern game, teams aren't willing to make that allowances. And that's why players like Ryan Shirky, um, like Eden Hazard, who's now obviously no longer a Real Madrid player, are no longer at the heights that they were maybe three, four, five years ago. It, it seems as if that is the risk aversion 
coming into the conversation where ultimately you could gamble on that player, but the moment that player is injured, if you don't have a duplicate or similar level player who can immediately slot back in, you could then have a, a systemic issue, which Chelsea have seen over seasons in the past when Eden Hazard was injured. You know, you would potentially the next level down player was never at the level or within the stratosphere of what his ultimate high was. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, I think that risk aversion is something, I mean, it's something that, that sits at the centre of game theory, if you like, when you, you talk about that surface level idea of risk and reward within football. Um, how much risk are you willing to accept for the reward or how much reward are you willing to, to give up for the risk? And it becomes very important. And if you're talking about a team who are very system focused, you, you're not going to accept that level of risk. Well, we've had so many questions and we are coming up to where we typically find that most of our listeners are ready to go do something else with our day. So we want to wrap this one up, Lee. But first, we want to say thank you so much for coming in during the busiest time of year for you before a family holiday, before the season kicks off, when you and the team are hard at work scouting players to begin that assault up the table to kick off the start of your season. And we just want to say thank you so much for spending time with us. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the, the conversation. Some great questions. And Sam, I know you want to say thanks to Lee as well. And I can't end the episode before you get a chance to do that. No, absolutely. I think I've I've been um, very excited to have somebody of his caliber on the board. You know, we've been doing a lot of, I would say for me, I mean, personally, somebody who's still learning on the job, somebody who's still um, an enthusiast at best. You know, I, I wouldn't go myself as far to say I'm, I'm a scout, but to have somebody to just look up to and, and learn uh, from somebody like him here, I think it has been a fantastic experience. But Lee, thank you so much. Despite, you know, scheduling difficulties, me shifting continents, you've been extremely patient, extremely kind, extremely available. And for that, we are, you know, eternally grateful. All the best with Veles, buena suerte, and uh, hopefully you have a fantastic season. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate that. Make sure you keep in touch as well. Well, look, you can find Lee on Twitter, FM Analysis is where you can find him there. He's had multiple books, which I'm sure you can get on a variety of different booksellers. Uh, nice thing is he's still posting content as well, even finds time and all of this to post some content out there for all of us to enjoy. And look, now London is Blue Podcast and Chelsea supporters have a fourth tier team that we can support this season. So up, Velas, that is what we're going to do. But thank you again so much, Lee. Thank you, Sam. Thank you to all of our wonderful listeners. And hijacked. Yep, that's right. Dan thought the episode was over. He was wrong. He was wrong, damn it. We have another Chelsea London is Blue summer tour stop to cover. This time, it's the Beltway Blues in D.C., where Nick chatted up with Allison and Matt all about their stop on the tour. What's going to be going on? A certain former professional player for Chelsea, a, a legend, who will be there at the stop to chat with us and much more. So stick around, enjoy this. And then I'm, I'm back to actually in the episode. So enjoy this, especially if you're going to be on the stop, you're going to come see us and hang out. So enjoy. I no more to say. All right. As you know, we are continuing our summer tour series with our final stop, not the final stop on, on Chelsea's tour this summer, but our final stop is a podcast 
and that is in D.C. Uh, with the Beltway Blues. And, of course, I am joined uh, by two of the Beltway Blues uh, here today, uh, Allison Kasich and Matt Emmerman. Uh, welcome to the London's Blue Podcast. How are you guys doing? Can't complain. Doing great, Nick. Thanks for having us. Of course. Uh, look, I, I want people to get to know you guys and to get to know uh, the wonderful chapter that you guys have established um, for, for, for Chelsea. And uh, so I guess, could you maybe uh, one by one, starting with Allison, go through and, and tell people about uh, who you are, what you do, and, and a little bit about the chapter? Sure. Uh, so I'm one of the co-founders of the Beltway Blues. Uh, we've been around since 2010. Uh, my friend Neil began as a Facebook group, right, and kind yep. of have uh, grown into a proper supporters club over the years. Um, but yeah, I've been in D.C. since 2005. It's a pretty cool soccer town. Um, people get really into like D.C. United. Premier League is obviously very popular. So thank- thankfully, we've been able to kind of find uh, <laughs> more and more Chelsea supporters uh, each year and have grown from a a small Facebook group to a couple hundred strong who are, you know, get to do this stuff week in and week out. Matt, what about you? What's, what's your role and and what's kind of a fun fact about the chapter that you love? Yeah, I, um, I have not been around as, or as involved with Bellway Blues as Allison has. Um, I actually moved to the area in, in 2010. I'm originally from New Jersey, but, um, when I moved to the area, found what Bellway Blues and started meeting up with them at four courts. Um, and just, getting involved on that level. Um, and after a couple life changes, um, I reached out to, to Allison and some other folks about getting more involved, you know, had more availability to myself to really get more involved and help drive the club. And, um, Allison was, was gracious enough to, to have me. So that was about a little over two years ago now. So I've been, um, kind of helping out with social media and doing some more broader stuff too, in terms of Chelsea supporter clubs as well too. So just been a a whirlwind um, now that I'm a little more involved too, but there's no stopping me now. So it's going to be great there, but um, you know, our chapter is, is massive. I mean, DC is such a transient area. So we do get some people that come and go too, but I always find that I think our club and what we do for our members, not just from the area, but broadly, um, it has a lasting impact on them too. So we get a lot of people who are engaged with us on social media, people we haven't seen in a long time at tour stops too, that either move in or move in at the area too. So um, I think we just have a lasting impact, you know, across the U.S. too. And, and that's really good. That's a really good striking point for us in terms of what we do for the club. Allison, this is not your first rodeo with a with a Chelsea summer tour by any means. Uh, you've been heavily involved in, in Chelsea in America for a long time. Can you, you know, for the uninitiated, let's pretend you're talking to just the people who are coming to their first summer tour who are really excited but don't know exactly what the vibe is. Can you explain what a, a Chelsea summer tour looks like at at a home chapter like your own and, and, and what the, uh, what the vibe will be. Oh, the vibe's going to be a party. We're going to have a very <laughs> good time. Uh, yeah. It's like part family reunion. And even with people you never met before, right. We all just care about Chelsea so much. We have something in common from, you know, minute one of a conversation. So it's just good vibes, people hanging out at the pub, special events. We're thrilled that you guys are going to be there to do a live pod. We've got a lot of other stuff planned throughout the weekend and yeah, I know I'll probably have to take Monday and Tuesday off work just to recover <laughs> from all the fun we're going to have. But, uh, you know, Friday to Sunday, it's going to be a lot of stuff happening. So, well, I mean, that, that's a great segue. You're, you're doing my job for me here. Let's let's go piece by piece into this. Right. Let's let's give the folks a proper itinerary for what's happening, what they should expect uh, over the, the couple of days that they're in town. Uh, so I guess between. 
uh, Matt and Allison, you guys kind of volley back and forth on on kind of the uh, uh, run of, of show, if you will. Sure. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with, uh, you know, if people are getting in early or are just local, um, if you want to ease your way into the football festivities of the weekend, <laughs> um, there's the Washington Spirit match on Friday night. A group of us have season tickets, so we'll definitely be there. We'll share out some links for discounted tickets if anyone wants to join us. But then um, the the real fun gets started on, or the, the Chelsea-related fun gets started on Saturday. And Matt's really been driving on a lot of awesome uh, events there. So maybe he can give you an overview overview of that. Saturday, yep. the party day, Matt. What, what's going on? <laughs> are, we, are we having fun? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we would really love to be at Ireland's four courts, but obviously the, some of the stuff that's happened over the past year with the renovations, um, we've had to pivot to another location, but um, we will be at Astro Beer Hall um, in DC. Uh, they've been gracious enough to host us. They're, they're really involved in the U.S. soccer kind of realm too. So it was kind of a natural fit in terms of their space and how accommodating they were too. So we are going to be at Astro Beer Hall in DC um, the event starts at 12 PM. Um, we'll have some kind of co-mingling with members as people trickle in, just get to know each other and stuff like that. Uh, and then of course, uh, in terms of festivities, you guys kick us off with a podcast that I believe at 3 PM too. So you will, uh, no pressure. carry the it's torch fine. for the first couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're really excited to have you guys. It's going to be awesome. And you guys have a great following too. And, and you get a lot of pull on the tour too. And, you know, we've just in some of the registrations we've seen thus far and some of the comments we've seen in terms of what we're going to have available, people have been really excited, too. So um, over the next couple of weeks, you'll start to see more promo in terms of the specific events, too. But that's part one. So we've got a lot more in store. Um, following along with that, we're going to have some story time with Neil Spy, Spy Barnett. I know people are very familiar with him. He's been on tour plenty of times. Um, you've got every story under the sun of his time at the club. Um, he brings a collection of fancy hats too, which is always a, uh, 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 an interesting takeaway for those tour events too. And, and he does get long winded, which I can, which I can appreciate as like a, as a, an event goer, because I love listening to the stories, but as someone who has to run point on this event, I'm going to have to probably shuffle him off stage because I'm going to be like, we got other things going on. Come on, it's time to go, you know, but he's, he's gracious in, in offering his time to us, um, provides a lot of insight and background to the club too. And, you know, if you are, if you're a history buff, especially from sports history, I mean, he's the guy to talk to because of how much he knows too. So um not sure, Nick, if you have any short stories to share about spy, but I'm sure everybody he, does in some capacity. He, he's, <laughs> he's been on damn near every stop that I've ever been to on, on a summer tour. So uh, there's some familiar stories. There's always some new stories. Uh, he always has an interesting point of view on, on things that are happening at the club. Very cool. Um, Allison, can I share the player information or do you want to take on, take that on? No, hey, you go for it. We just got the green light today to, to talk about it. So it's good timing. All right. Yeah. Yeah. This is the, this is the big news. People have been uh, patiently waiting for this. So <clears throat> obviously with every tour stop, we try to get a former player legend, you know, at the event and stuff like that. Um, and we recently just got confirmation that Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank will be at our tour stop too. Awesome. So we are going to have a, um, a great time with him. You know, the, the club's always gracious in bringing these in bringing these guys out. So, and they always say we seem to have a great time, obviously the members and, and our supporters seem to love that stuff too. So we'll have a Q and a with him. I imagine we'll work in some meet and greet, whether it's photos or autographs and stuff like that as well too. So um, that'll be, kind of the cap on the, uh, on the evening for us in terms of our events. Um, 
And then we're also working in, we're kind of just kind of working the time, the downtime in between events too. Obviously just like member get togethers, everyone hang out. Uh, we're going to have some raffles and some giveaways as well too. So we're still working on some of the, some of the details on that too. But um, <clears throat> we partner with DC scores, which is a local uh, like poet athlete uh, organization in DC too. So uh, for the raffle and the giveaways, all the proceeds will go to DC Scores too. It's a it's a group we've partnered with over the past couple of years. Have a good relationship with them too. So, any chance we have a, uh, to raise money for them, we take advantage of it. That's amazing. So that's that's Saturday, right? Roughly like yep. mid afternoon until well into the evening, uh, I'm sure. Uh, is, is there a a closing time uh, for Old Astro Beer Hall? When when do they when do they shut their doors? Um, I think like they two. formally close it like. Yeah, two. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we will know, probably be there until two. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usual. people going to the match the next day, but you know, that's their problem to figure out. So. Now, look, uh, we, we all know that the DC is an interesting uh, travel setup. Obviously, match day is going to be an interesting uh, adventure for those who are not from uh, the Beltway. Can uh, Allison, can you talk about match day and all the things that are going on there and, and maybe the travel considerations that people should put into play for their for their match going experience? Yeah. Uh, so there's several options. Uh, they're all going to take a little bit because the, the stadium is outside of the city by a decent chunk. It's kind of more in the Maryland suburbs. Um, so we will be running. Um, we have a bus, potentially two buses that uh, will be running between Astro and the stadium. Um, still, right now, we still have a couple spots available um, if people want to reach out to us on social media if they're interested in buying a ticket for that. But otherwise, um, the Metro, which is kind of like our subway in DC, that does run out to the stadium. Uh, it doesn't take that long. The caveat to be aware of is that once you get off at the subway stop, you have to walk a little over a mile to the stadium. It's not like right there, like a Wembley is or something like that. Um, but it's easy. You, you can get there via public transportation. Uh, and then otherwise, um, the, you can drive there, but uh, if you have rental car, but, uh, just leave yourself some time for traffic and parking because traffic is not, uh, the strong suit of Washington, DC. Uh, we kind of always have it. So, um, that some people will be driving, we'll be hosting a tailgate at the stadium as soon as our bus arrives, um, there will also be a fan fest at the stadium, uh, kind of TBD time and details, um, but the Premier League's pulling that together. So I'm sure it's going to be good. And then uh, Chelsea is the second match of the doubleheader. So if anyone has a ticket, your ticket is good for both matches. If you want to go in early and see Villa or Brentford, that'll start at 12. And then Chelsea match starts at 245. And then uh, if people uh, aren't don't need a nap <laughs> after mm -hmm. all of that fun, uh, we will be hosting an after party at Astro Beer Hall on Sunday evening. Uh, and their food's pretty good. So if people just want to kind of come hang out, get a beer and dinner after the match, that is where we will be. So so leave plenty of time to get to the stadium on yep. Sunday and just make sure that you're uh, you're not running it up until the last second because, you know, you never know what kind of traffic will will be around. Um I, I guess, uh, Matt, any any other things that are happening around? I mean, there's a lot that you guys already mentioned, but are there any other things that our folks should look out for or be excited about? You know, I mean, D.C. is highly walkable, too, which is great. And obviously the, the selling point is the monuments, too. So if you've not been to the city, I highly suggest people go check out, you know, the, the National Mall. Um, I mean, I've lived here for over a decade now, and every time I go, I'm always just in awe of just – 
walking around the Washington Monument, Lincoln Memorial, Jefferson, just walking around the basin and stuff like that too. So that's a really big selling point for me in terms of um, just taking in the city that way too. Um, the Smithsonian museums too around there are all free, uh, which is great too. So if you're trying to save a bit of cash on the tour, um, highly suggest you go check out some of the museums. The Air and Space one particularly is um, is, a, is a great shout in, in terms of um, you know, to kind of taking in the sites as well too. Allison mentioned the Washington Spirit match as well too. If you've not been to Audi Field, I think that's where they're they're playing all their mm -hmm. matches now. Um, it's a great stadium. It's in Navy Yards, right across the street from the Nats ballpark too. I think the Nats are away that weekend, so I, or else I would have suggest that as well. But um, Audi Field is a great spot. So um, plenty to do in the city. Very easy to kind of just get lost in and really enjoy it as well too. So if people are looking to make a weekend out of it, you know, it's the place to be. I need I need to give some help help them uh, get some inside info. People are going to want to eat, right? DC is a great food town. Are there a couple of spots that you guys would recommend checking out beside Astro Beer Hall, where people I'm sure will spend a lot of time, energy, and money? As say, if you want, I mean, we have, it is a great food town, so you have plenty of options. Uh, an area that is would be walking distance from Astro, so not too uh, not too far. Um, is uh, Jose Andres, who's you know well, now he's you know just a famous chef everywhere, but you know he's in DC, so he's our favorite. He has a handful of restaurants in the uh, Gallery Place Chinatown area, which is just again maybe a ten minute walk from where our pub will be. There's Haleo, which is excellent excellent Spanish food. Oyamel, kind of his take on Mexican food. Um, China uh, Chiclano, which is a kind of a Chinese meets Peruvian fusion food. So really that whole street, there's a really good barbecue place. Um, you really can't go wrong um, anywhere on that block. Matt, any uh, any favorites besides those? Um, I'll give one kind of Chelsea tie, but Gordon Ramsay just opened up a fish, uh, uh, a chipper actually in the wharf too. So I would strongly recommend people go check that one out. Um, if they're looking for a little pub fair, you know, just classic UK fair that recently opened up a little while ago. Um, and this is, this is not a plug cause I don't have any affiliation with them, but one restaurant I love and, and the Georgetown area is great. It's not really metro accessible, but it's a great little town to, and part of the town to walk through. But, um, if you're big into like Belgian food and Belgian beer and stuff like that, Sovereign in Georgetown is probably one of the best restaurants, Ooh, um, okay. that I've been to as well too. So, um, definitely check that out. Awesome. All right. Well, lots happening. Uh, really excited to see you guys. So far, DC has uh, outsold the uh, original uh, ticket allotment that we had. So we're we're very, very pumped to come and see you guys. Uh, leave, leave you with one last question. I'll start with Matt. What do you hope people leave this experience uh, in DC with on the summer tour with Chelsea? Um, well, the lasting memories are one thing, but like, you know, people come to the preseason, you know, tour to watch the players and stuff like that too. But there is just such a strong element of like, like supporters and members across the U S and if we can kind of make some lasting connections, um, whether it's club to club or just folks kind of just passing through or just following the team around too. Um, that's what I want to contribute to some of those lasting relationships, um, kind of rooted in, in the, in the club and, and they're just, support of the club too. And hopefully that carries on to future summer tours or like trips over this overseas to go watch the club at Sanford bridge or doing a way day or something like that too. So, um, my suggestion would for to people is just open yourself up to conversation, put yourself out there, meet these like members, engage in conversation. I've certainly done that over the years and it's, um, it's just paid dividends time and time again too. So 
Yeah. Last word to you, Allison. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hoping at least in D.C. we'll find some people that, you know, local people we haven't met yet. Right. You know, the you look at the the TV ratings every weekend for the Premier League and <laughs> D.C. normally is, num- you know, number one, number two. I'm sure some of those folks are watching Chelsea from, you know, their um, from their living room. And we'd, you know, we'd love to hang out at the bar with them and uh, watch matches with them at four courts once it's reopened um, in August. So um, hopefully we can all make some new friends on the tour. Awesome. Well, look, we are very much looking forward to to visiting. We'll see you guys in a couple short weeks. And uh, and if there's anything else that pops up, uh, we will communicate from our two groups and social and email and all that sort of stuff. So uh, really appreciate it, guys. Thanks for the uh, for the time. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. All right. That is it for real this time. The episode is actually over. Really hope you enjoyed an incredible deep dive from Dan and Sam with Lee Scott on everything scouting, how it relates to the world of Chelsea right now with all the changes we've made, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They did such a great job. And uh, and hope you enjoyed Nick breaking it down on the DC trip. So if you're going to be there, you just got all the info. You just learned about Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank being there. So shout out. Bet you're hyped. And um, yeah, let us know if you want to hear more pods like this too. This is something I think Dan and Sam were both really excited about. And we are hoping you enjoyed. So until next time, we've got a certain big podcast coming up the, tomorrow that everyone loves. If all goes well in the recording. I don't I don't want to make any promises, but it's a certain guy that you guys really like to hear transfer updates from. Anyways, <laughs> until next time, keep the blue flag flying high. <laughs>